Hello and welcome back to Friday's episode of the official Sasta podcast with me, your host, Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings on Snapchat and brought to you by the one and only Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. However, to the show today and today we take you inside one of the world's fastest growing SaaS companies, Zendesk. So joining me in the hot seat today, I'm thrilled to welcome Douglas Hanna to the show. Now, Douglas is the GM of the developer platform at Zendesk. And before joining Zendesk, Douglas was the founder and CEO of Help.com, where he grew the business from one to 16. Prior to Help, Douglas was the CEO of A Small Orange, the web hosting firm that was acquired by Endurance International Group, where Douglas was on the executive team when they went public on the NASDAQ. Prior to that, Douglas held numerous roles at HostGator, including corporate communications as well as customer service strategy. However, before we dive into the show state, you must check out Algolia. Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com slash Sasta podcast. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Douglas, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. Huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure to be included. I've been listening for a while, so it's fun to be on as a guest. Well, that's very kind of you to say, but I'd love to get started today by hearing a bit about you and how you made your way into the wonderful world of SaaS. So I started in SaaS when I was about 13, so probably not as young as you got started in it, but, but close. So I started doing technical support when I was about 13 for a web hosting company and then effectively worked my way up to run customer service at another kind of mid-sized web hosting company called HostGator. And at the time, we had 150 people and were growing very rapidly. And, and hosting is not kind of traditional SaaS in the way that we think of like Zendesk or, or some of our peers as SaaS companies, but definitely like SaaS business model and economics and a great education to kind of what we were doing. And then I became CEO of a company called A Small Orange, another hosting company. I joined when they had about 10 people. And then within about two years, we had scaled up to about 50. And then another two years, about 100. And in the process of that, we were acquired by a big conglomerate of web hosting companies called Endurance International Group. So I was on their executive team when they had an IPO. So that was a really exciting time. Continued to grow the business. Took a brief foray into startup land and doing SaaS myself. Not successful. So I've been one for one. And then I joined Zendesk a little over a year ago. And Zendesk, probably familiar with it, but we make software to enable better customer relationships. About 87,000 customers were based here in San Francisco. Initially joined on our strategy team. And then about six months ago, I took on our current role running our developer platform. And now I'm, I'm super intrigued because you mentioned your, your very diverse background there with, with kind of starting a SaaS company yourself, with being on the exact team of an IPO'd company, uh, and now at Zendesk. So I'm intrigued to hear what were the big adjustments that you had to make in making the move to a bigger company like Zendesk? So there's 
there's definitely, I think, pros and cons of, of joining a larger company versus doing a startup. So I think on the pro side, you definitely, like I personally prefer companies that are post-product market fit. So scaling and growing a company is of more interest to me than kind of the initial figuring out what products appeal to what customers. Zendesk uh, found product market fit quite a while ago. So I, I joined about, I think, a year and a half post-IPO. So we had very publicly demonstrated we have found some version of product market fit. Like our platform alone is used by tens of thousands of customers. So that was a big one. And that kind of contributes directly to the next thing I would say, which is kind of impact and scale of impact. So at a bigger company, I think you can have much bigger impact and scale just because the company, the customer, there are so many customers and it's being used by so many. Uh, like we have 500 plus apps in our marketplace alone. If I were to build a platform at a startup, we definitely wouldn't have that scale initially. Certainly the customers as well. So I spent most of my career in and around customer service. So I could spend time with some of our customers like Uber and Slack and Rovio and Squarespace and tons of others. And that's really exciting and educational. And then something else I really like is like Zendesk is a, a global company and that's really exciting. In terms of then the challenges with the impact and the product market fit, what are the challenges then on the opposing side that often occur and occur to you in making the move from a startup or in smaller companies to a, to a much bigger company? Totally, yeah. So there, there are definitely cons as well. I probably spend more time in meetings than I would if I was at a, a 10 or 50 or 100 person company. I think bigger company means just more to coordinate and more kind of people to get aligned on what you're doing. Uh, a lot of competing priorities all the time. And we probably move a bit slower than smaller companies. It's harder for us to turn on a dime. We have kind of mature revenue. We have customers that are, are using our, our software at scale. So you can't just kind of make changes uh, very suddenly without thinking about kind of the greater impact of that. So there are definitely downsides to it. But for me, like the pros outweighed the cons. I guess then, what would you advise those at startups uh, debating a move to larger companies? What would be the big kind of advice? So I think number one is you need to make sure you're passionate about kind of the space and the company you're joining. So like I mentioned, I've been working in and around customer service pretty much my whole career. So there's really great alignment with, with what Zendesk does and what I was interested in. I think you also want to make sure you're in a role where you have an impact. You don't want to be corporate drone number 10,000 and one. So making sure that you're joining in a role where, where you think you can actually move the needle in the business, I think it's really important. And then there's always the, the personal risk reward factor. Like economically, joining a startup rarely makes sense. It's kind of like buying a lottery ticket and generally versus the stability of a bigger company. So that, that depends on kind of your life situation and what you're thinking about there. But that, I think that's another important consideration if you're thinking about making a switch. Absolutely. And, and you said there about kind of the security of a, an established company. And now at Zendesk, you're the GM of the developer platform. So I have to start by asking then, how can companies go about building a platform? And in today's world where the, the term platform is bandied about so much, now as a VC, I hear platform for every fucking product. So what, what is a platform first? Let's do that. And how can companies go about building a platform? Yeah, so platform is definitely a trendy word and, and has been trendy for a while. I don't know if it's quite dethroned cloud as the trendiest word yet, but working on it. So I, I think fundamentally, like a platform is a way to kind of extend the functionality of your products. So we think about our, our platform as you're able to either embed Zendesk functionality into your products or integrate other tools with Zendesk. So that's kind of a, a view of being able to extend your extend Zendesk and get more from it. And I think 
if you're considering building a platform for your own company or, or launching a platform or, or something like that, the, probably the fundamental thing you need to start with is just identifying valuable use cases. Some products are more extensible and, and able to integrate than others. And then figuring out how a platform can help solve and, and close those gaps. So I would say like the main reason, this predates me by several years, but when Zenda started its platform, it was really a way to give customers and partners a way to extend the functionality of Zendesk without us actually having to build those features into the product. So smaller company, resource-constrained, customer requests outweighed our bandwidth to handle them. So the easy answer then to customers is, hey, how about you build it yourself? Or, hey, partner, how about you build it for you? And we had tons of use cases for that and continue to uncover more. So I would say fundamentally, like you need to make sure that you the use cases are out there and available. And then there's a whole bunch of like tactical stuff in terms of how to build the platform. You spoke about, uh, just before we go on to the tactical stuff and how to build a platform, which I do want to discuss, you spoke about customers asking for specific things there. I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on customization in the world of SaaS and the potential dangers or positives of doing so with your SaaS product. Yeah, so when I was at my startup, we had a philosophy. We will, at an early stage startup, we will reorder the roadmap based on customer feedback and kind of sales-driven requests effectively, but we're not going to necessarily create something that our other customers wouldn't necessarily get a lot of value from. And I, I like that philosophy, and I've actually heard that mentioned a couple of, by a couple of other people uh, on your podcast and in articles I've read, so it's been validated at least a couple times. And then at Zendesk, I think we have the level of maturity now where, obviously, customer feedback drives our roadmap, but it's going to be, it's, it's very, very rare where a customer asks a specific feature, and then we ship it for them specifically. But we do have, our platform enables us to kind of either through professional services engagements or just by like empowering the customer to do it, it allows them to build functionality that maybe we don't have. The answer for most questions Zendesk related is, oh, you can do that with our platform or with our APIs or with some version of our platform. So it really gives our customers a lot of flexibility. And I do want to dive into the tactical approaches to building a platform there. Having having done it now at Zendesk, what are your, is your take on, on the real kind of nitty-gritty and tactical aspect of building the platform? Yeah, so you definitely, I think, if you want it to be a true multi-sided marketplace where you have an active and kind of engaged developer or partner community, you certainly need a business that's big enough. So Zendesk, we started our platform on the order of four to five years ago. So we were a reasonably mature company by that point. I think that's that's an important consideration. You don't want to kind of launch and have crickets. And then like related to that is you want to kind of pre-seed your marketplace or your platform or whatever you call it with enough functionality where when, when customers visit for the first time, they can actually get immediate value and usage from it. Because if you just launch an empty platform with all the technical capabilities for partners or whoever to build on it, and there's nothing in it when you launch, it's not going to be very exciting. So you definitely want to make sure that customers, the first group of customers that sees it can immediately give value to it. It's like you don't want to go into the dance and, and be the first person there sort of concept. And then I think it's important to also think about your platform go-to-market early on. Build it and they will come definitely doesn't apply to, to many things, but platforms in particular most likely. And a platform that no one is, is using tends to be very low value. 
Can I ask, how do you approach the chicken and egg problem that's similar to, to marketplaces with platforms in terms of, you said about partners that are producing apps for the marketplace. Often that's challenging when there's no initial consumers and there's no consumers without partners. So how do you yeah. approach that chicken and egg problem in the early stages? So I think the best way is, and I, I love thinking about like these kind of growth optimization problems around marketplaces, but probably the easiest way that you can do it is you as the company that's building the the platform create the first official apps or the first apps or, or capabilities in the platform. That's what we did at Zendesk and those apps actually continue to be quite popular today. So we we clearly had kind of the most intimate knowledge of what our customers were looking for that was not supported by our core kind of product use cases. So we decided to fill those through kind of the set of, we call them Zendesk official apps that we created and put in the marketplace. And that, and that gives customers value. And then you can demonstrate, oh, we've had X number of downloads or Y engagement. And then that helps encourage partners to build for your marketplace. So you can also tap some of your customers and former employees to help build for it because if you give them kind of this early access opportunity, a lot of companies will be more willing to do it than they would if, if they're just kind of another partner that's joining the platform. You said that about building the apps in those early days. I'm intrigued then to hear your thoughts on choosing this platform approach and how that then alters how you build your team. Does it fundamentally change any structures or hiring processes? I don't think so. It's good to invest people in, in resources specifically in the, the building and maintenance of the platform itself. So the capabilities that allow partners to, to build apps or to use apps, things like that. But I, I think we still have a, a very large product team that builds features that are consumed primarily by customers without having to use our platforms. And, and I think most companies that have platforms do the same. So I think you can view it as a kind of parallel set of efforts. And we definitely do think about when we're building features if there are third-party kind of apps that, that serve it well. An example is actually, that I think is really relevant, is we have Twitter and Facebook integrations at Zendesk, and we kept getting requests for just more types of integrations, Instagram, YouTube, whatever. And we're like, wait, we don't want to build all these things ourselves, so why don't we, this is a terrible made-up verb, verb that I just came up with, platformify it, maybe. <laughs> maybe we have to, get to strike that one from uh, the record of, of Earth's vocabulary. But effectively, we opened up the capabilities to build these sorts of channels into our platform. And now we have something called our channel framework, which allows partners generally, uh, but also customers to build these third-party integrations themselves. So we seeded it by virtue of having the first two in our product. And now the team that used to do that focuses primarily on maintaining the channel framework platform capabilities versus maintaining the Twitter and Facebook capabilities. So I think you might see certain features of your product evolve to become platform functionality which is really cool to see. Absolutely. But taking a step back to our metaphorical platform that we've built, uh, congratulations on that, by the way, uh, with the steps that you suggested there on the tactical steps, uh, how do we know them when it's working? What's the appearance of a successful platform? Great question there. So I think we certainly look at adoption. I think the amount in, in kind of two levels. So one is just kind of your, your simple, arguably vanity metrics. So are there customers that are using apps that are using your API, etc. I think at a high level, that, that's a good guiding kind of metric to see that is, is it being consumed and is it somewhat useful? Level of adoption, do you think, would suggest uh, a sense of product market fit? 
I think it, it's certainly relative to, to your company and what you do and kind of what the platform capabilities are. Like, it, it's really hard to generalize that because if you have a very complex product with kind of very heavy platform integrations, like maybe 5% of customers enabling some of those things is, is a win. Whereas if you have a very simple product and like, like think about not not to simplify too much, but WordPress is like a relatively straightforward product with a very mature plugin ecosystem. So I, I would assume a very, very large percentage of WordPress users use plugins, whereas if you have some really complex product, maybe that's going to be less likely. So I think it's all over the map, depending on the size of your customer base and, and kind of who they are. What's your take on retention then with regards to determining whether it works? So there are levels that suggest a successful marketplace with retention. Yeah, so that's definitely the second kind of order of metrics that I think about maybe less so specifically retention a different way to think about that would be engagement so how much value are customers getting from whatever they're using your platform for whether that's an api integration or apps or sdks is there a way to measure the value and engagement and that clearly is different per not only per product but per platform product but also per integration potentially so it's hard to get there but retention is i think a function of that as well absolutely i'm intrigued how much of a role does testing and iteration play in regards to creating a platform that's successful? Yeah, I think there, there are a couple ways. So from a product-driven perspective, I think you're going to constantly want to iterate on what your platform capabilities are. Like we continue to release new API endpoints. We continue to release new framework for our app marketplace that hopefully like helps extend the functionality of what we have today and give customers kind of more capabilities despite kind of what we already have. So definitely you're going to continue to iterate there. Testing, I think you're going to want to think about certainly what we call like the merchandising of your marketplace or your platform. Like how are you promoting different things and what seems to resonate and what doesn't. And then you also have this like lovely capitalistic system in your marketplace itself, where if it's a mature enough ecosystem, you'll see what customers or which partners are being successful, which apps are being used the most by customers, et cetera. And that's really cool to see. And it's kind of a versioning of testing and iteration itself. Mm-hmm. I, I'm intrigued. One quick question before we dive into the 60 seconds astronauts you said about if they build it it doesn't necessarily mean they'll come in terms of acquisition in the early days how does one address that in the in the fundamental uh, kind of initial starting point so in terms of partner acquisition in terms of what's the more challenging and how do you address that let's do that oh yeah so wait, maybe which side of the marketplace which one would so, you say is harder they're, they're both hard obviously but maybe my my prior advice if you don't want to start your platform too early kind of defaults the answer for that one of once you have enough customers then it makes sense to start thinking about the platform in terms of at least like a mature partner driven platform like you should probably think about API and things like that very early on. But if you want kind of an open platform with, with a marketplace or an app store or something like that, I think you need to have a reasonable maturity to your business. So at that point, your challenge, you've probably figured out at least the fundamentals of customer acquisition and you're, think, you're thinking more about, okay, how do we acquire partners and, and make it so like at Zendesk, we get a number of new partners every month and they just kind of come in the door because they're familiar with us. Like getting to that point definitely takes quite a bit of time and also some specific efforts there. So I think the technical answer to your question for a platform is like getting the partners are harder, but that assumes that you have some level of customers. Otherwise, you have a different problem. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But as you know, uh, having listened to the show before, uh, we love a 60-second SASTA. So we're going to do Douglas's 60-second SASTA. Uh, 60 seconds per answer. Ready to roll? Yeah, sounds great. So let's do the biggest mistake that companies make with their platform approach. 
Yeah, I think the biggest one is definitely don't seed it with enough value or functionality, et cetera, from day one. So customers come into the empty dance floor. So you definitely don't want that. Empty dance floor. I love that. Uh, great way to do leaky bucket. Uh, and then how can companies take advantage of the data and tools to enable great experiences on their platform? Yeah, so I think you can kind of see what's popular and what isn't. So see if the same developers are doing more for your platform or more with your platform. Ask them what they like and don't like. There's no, I don't think there's any kind of perfect science in terms of uh, a data-driven approach to it, but you can definitely use that data to help inform some of the work you're doing. What's your favorite SaaS reading material? What are the must-reads for you when they come in? So I have to I have to say Saster, obviously, and a bunch of individual blogs. But I also like to read some of these newsletters that compile a bunch of content. So like Mattermark has a good newsletter, Founders Grade, Hit and Shaw's newsletter. I find things that I wouldn't normally read based on those. And then there are a couple that aren't particularly SaaS related that I really enjoy. So Ben Thompson, who writes for Techery, is a favorite of mine from a strategy perspective. And then a final thing that I really like is the New York Times has a great column called Corner Office that interviews like CEOs and other leaders, a bunch of companies and organizations. And it's really interesting to read those. But I, I, I do want to have one final question in the 60 seconds faster. And that's what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Yeah, so many things like 2020 <laughs> hindsight is really valuable. And if only I could go back to it, I occasionally think about like, what if I did high school or college again, all the things that I could do differently, but it definitely applies professionally as well. Probably the biggest thing I took from my first company to my second is that you don't want to compromise on hiring. And even as like I hire at Zendesk today, we have a very high quality bar when we're hiring and it's, it's always good to be reminded of that. So it means taking the time to really look for, understand like what kind of greatness or, or success looks like in a role, really be aggressive about finding someone who matches that profile, interviewing extensively, making sure that you pay for top talent. Like I, I definitely, um, I took a lot more chances in my first company than I have since then. And it can hurt to sign a really expensive paycheck or put a really expensive paycheck in your online payroll system. I guess people don't really sign checks anymore, but it can make a really big difference. I think you can really up your chances of success because taking chances with your people, particularly in, in a SaaS company, like that, they're what's driving the success. And if you, uh, and it's just a level of risk that, that can be hard to, uh, to recover from. Absolutely. No, I, I do agree with you there, but I, I do want to discuss and move out of the 60 second quickfire. So don't worry on that one. Okay. But I do want to discuss one of the main elements where startups seem to struggle, and that's nailing the go-to-market for their platform. You mentioned it a bit earlier, you touched on it. So how have you approached it, and, and what has worked fundamentally that you've seen? Yeah, it's definitely not a solved problem for us, but definitely it's something that we think about and that we're we're kind of working on learning and iterating. So some things we have learned is like you need to understand who your platform users are and then who your customers are and how that differs. So that might seem obvious, but lots of companies with platforms like love to compare themselves to Stripe or Twilio or some other really great like developer-centric companies. But like a learning that we've had at Zendesk that again like in hindsight seems obvious is that our core customers are, are generally customer service leaders. They're not developers. Zendesk is not usually a product that's consumed by developers. It's uh, it like enables customer service conversations. So we think about 
okay, how do we enable our core customer, like our customer and service leader, to have kind of intelligent and informed conversations with developers and product managers and other people like that through the company? And then how do we reach those people directly as well? So that, that was like a key learning, I think, that helped focus some of our messaging and go-to-market efforts. We tend to do a little bit less like direct developer customer acquisition than maybe some other like pure developer-focused companies would do, just because we think we, we can add more value to some of our existing customers. So I think that's really important. And then I think with kind of omni-channel, your platform has to be flexible. So you need to have a strategy for go-to-market enablement for whatever kind of the different channels will be. I guess speaking of omni-channel there, what must startups do to gain that attention that's now even harder to get in today's world? Yeah, so I think fundamentally we you like you see an evolution of what kind of channels customers are using or users or kind of whatever your preferred nomenclature is. And what we see is that customers want functionality in apps. So we have SDKs. They want functionality on web. So we have uh, on their in their web apps. So we have a web widget. So we we try and be responsive to that. And that even extends to like Internet of Things devices. So we had a hack day last year and a team built like an integration between Amazon Alexa and Zendesk. So who knows like if that will be released publicly in the future, but there's always going to be new channels. So I think making sure your platform is flexible enough to handle that is really important. Well, who knows what the future holds, as you said there. But Douglas, I can't wait to have mojitos with you at Sasta. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. And again, a huge hand to Douglas for giving up the time today to appear on the official Sasta podcast. And if you love the show today, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs, or you can follow Jason Lemkin at JasonLK on Twitter. However, before we leave you today, you must check out Algolia. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash SaaS to podcast. As always, we so appreciate your support and cannot wait to bring you Monday's episode with Namely's Matt Straz.